Our sermon today is taken from Exodus chapter 10, verse 1 to 29. This is the word of God. Then the Lord said to Moses, Go into Pharaoh, for I have hardened his heart and the heart of his servants, that I may show these signs of mine among them, and that you may tell them, tell in the hearing of your son and of your grandson how I have dealt harshly with the Egyptians, and what signs I have done among them, that you may know that I am the Lord. So Moses and Aaron went into Pharaoh and said to him, Thus says the Lord, the God of the Hebrews, How long will you refuse to humble yourself before me? Let my people go, that they may serve me. For if you refuse to let my people go, behold, tomorrow I will bring locusts into your country, and they shall cover the face of the land, so that no one can see the land. And they shall eat what is left to you after the hill, and they shall eat every tree of yours that grows in the fields. And they shall fill your houses, and the houses of all your servants, and of all the Egyptians, as neither your fathers nor your grandfathers have seen from the day they came on earth to this day. Then he turned and went out from Pharaoh. Then Pharaoh's servant, servant said to him, How long shall this man be a snare to us? Let the men go that they may serve the Lord their God. Do you not yet understand that Egypt is ruined? So Moses and Aaron went, were brought back to Pharaoh, and he said to them, Go, serve the Lord your God. But which ones are to go? Moses said, we will go with our young and our old. We will go with our sons and our daughters and with our flocks and herds, for we must hold a feast to the Lord. But he said to them, The Lord be with you if ever I let you and your little ones go. Look, you have some evil purpose in mind. No, go the men among you and serve the Lord, for that is what you are asking. And they were driven out from Pharaoh's presence. Then the Lord said to Moses, Stretch out your hand over the land of Egypt for the locusts, so that they may come upon the land of Egypt and eat every plant in the land, all that the hill has left. So Moses stretched out his staff over the land of Egypt, and the Lord brought an east wind upon the land all the day and all the night. When it was morning, the east wind had brought the locusts. The locusts came up over the, all the land of Egypt and settled on the whole country of Egypt such a dense swarm of locusts as had never been before, nor ever will be again. They covered the face of the whole land, so that the land was darkened, and they ate all the plants in the land and all the fruits of the trees that the hill had left. Not a green thing remained, neither tree nor plant of the field through all the land of Egypt. Then Pharaoh hastily called Moses and Aaron and said, I have sinned against the Lord your God and against you. Now therefore... Forgive my sin, please, only this once, and plead with the Lord your God, only to remove this death from me. So he went out from Pharaoh and pleaded with the Lord. And the Lord turned to, turned the wind into a very strong east, west wind, which lifted the locusts and drove them into the Red Sea. Not a single locust was left in all the country of Egypt. But the Lord hardened Pharaoh's heart, and he did not let the people of Israel go. Then the Lord said to Moses, Stretch out your hand toward heaven, that there may be darkness over the land of Egypt, a darkness to be felt. So Moses stretched out his hand toward heaven, and there was pitch darkness in all the land of Egypt three days. They did not see one another, nor did anyone rise from his place for three days, but all the people of Israel had light where they lived. Then Pharaoh called Moses and said, Go, serve the Lord, 
your little ones also may go with you. Only let your flocks and your herds remain behind. But Moses said, You must also let us have sacrifices and burnt offerings, that we may sacrifice to the Lord our God. Our livestock also must go with us. Not a hoof shall be left behind, for we must take off for we must for we must take of them to serve the Lord our God, and we must and we do not know with what we must serve the Lord until we arrive there. But the Lord hardened Pharaoh's heart, and he would not let them go. Then Pharaoh said to him, Get away from me, take care never to see my face again, for on the day you see my face you shall die. Moses said, As you say, I will not see your face again. Thus says the Lord. Amen. Friends, let's pray one more time for the preaching of God's word. Father, thank you so much for saving us in Christ Jesus and for revealing yourself in your word, Father. Help us as we focus on this passage today to see the meaning of this passage, the sense of this passage, Father, and by your Holy Spirit, make my words clear as your words, and may your Spirit, therefore, cause us to obey and love it with our hearts so that we might obey you further in our lives. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Friends, uh, welcome. We're continuing our series once again in uh, the book of Exodus, the life of Moses. We're just going chapter by chapter here and continuing on in the plagues. So remember now what happened here so far, right? Moses was called by God to go back to Egypt where he used to live and to rescue God's people, the Israelites, out from under slavery from from the Egyptians. And as God is telling Moses to do this, Pharaoh's heart is getting hardened and hardened. And Pharaoh is refusing to let the people of Israel go, to let them go out of their slavery to go worship the Lord over the Red Sea in the promised land of Cana, right? And God, therefore, is sending plague after plague after plague, intensifying those plagues each time. And right now, in our passage today, in chapter 10, we're going to cover um, the whole thing, hopefully. Um, we're going to see two plagues here, plagues number 8 and plague number 9, the locust plague and the darkness plague. We're not just going to cover what actually happens, though. We're going to cover the purpose of the plagues, because this passage actually tells us a lot about the purpose of the plagues and the nature of true obedience, the nature of true repentance, as the Egyptians and the Israelites were responding to the plague of the locusts and the plague of the darkness, all right? There are three things I want to point out from this passage today. The first thing I want to point out is the priority of knowing God. Second thing I want to point out is the nature of true repentance. And the third thing I want to point out is God in the hands of sinful men. All right? So first point, the priority of knowing God. And for this point, we're just going to cover the first two verses because these two verses actually give us a key to understanding the purpose of every single one of these plagues. And immediately as we read this passage, something counterintuitive hits us. Look at what it says there in chapter 10, verse 1 again. Then the Lord said to Moses, go into Pharaoh, for I have hardened his heart and the heart of his servants, so that I may show these signs of mine among them, and that you may tell in the hearing of your son and of your grandson how I have dealt harshly with the Egyptians and what signs I have done among them, that you may know that I am the Lord. Now notice immediately the the seemingly harsh tone of it, right? He's telling to Moses, go into Pharaoh, for I've hardened his heart. That's already counterintuitive because, remember, why would Moses go to somebody that God is telling him is already stubborn, right? You would think that Moses should be asked to go to Pharaoh if his heart was softened. 
but rather God is telling to Moses, his heart is hardened now. This is the right time for you to go in and to confront him once again. So that's already counterintuitive. And then notice the purpose clause in the next phrase in verse 1 here. Look at what it says here. For I've hardened his heart and the heart of his servants, so that I may show these signs of mine among them. Now, what would be the common sense ordering of the logic here? I think the common sense reading here of the plagues, of the purpose of the plagues, is this, right? God sends out these plagues for the purpose of softening Pharaoh's heart. In other words, the common sense reading would be, why is God sending out these plagues? Well, so that Pharaoh's heart would be softened and his people would finally be let go. But that's not the logical ordering of this verse. He doesn't say, I will send these plagues so that his heart will be softened. He simply says, I have hardened his heart and that is a means by which so that I may show these signs of mine among them. So that the end goal of God here, it's not ultimately just a softening of Pharaoh's heart, but rather the hardening of his heart so that the plagues would actually be carried out. In other words, God desires that all of his plagues, all 10 of them, will be carried out to Pharaoh. And God knew exactly that God would, Pharaoh hardens, would harden Pharaoh's heart. You see that? So that the purpose, therefore, of the plagues is something beyond themselves. God has decided that there will be 10 plagues, and by these 10 plagues, God is trying to communicate to us something. What is that something? Well, look again at verse 1 and verse 2. He calls the plagues signs, right? He says, I may show these signs of mine among them. And then in verse 2, he says, how I have dealt harshly with the Egyptians and what signs I have done among them. Signs, by the nature of the thing, signs refer to something else. The plagues, in other words, are signifying something beyond themselves. And what are they signifying? Well, the end of verse 2 tells us that God alone is the Lord. The plagues, in other words, were sent out as a means of communicating who God is, as a means of persuading the Egyptians and the Israelites that God himself is alone the Lord. And the Lord there in capital letters in your Bibles, right, is a translation of the Hebrew word of the name of God, Yahweh, the great I Am. God is who he is. He's a self-sufficient one. He's sovereign over all things. And so God is saying by these signs, because you've seen these plagues, because you've seen these signs, you would know that I am the sovereign one. And that you would therefore not trust these pagan deities and pagan idols that you've been entrusting yourselves to, O Egypt and Israel. Right? So the Egyptians, they were tempted to worship the river god, Happy. And God is saying, you thought that Happy was in control of the rivers? No. If the river... I say to the river that it would become blood. It will turn into blood. I am in control of the river. Not happy. Not some pagan deity. You're, you're trusting your military conquest and might. I'm going to send boils over all of their skin so that they would be completely routed. Are you tempted to trust the sun god Ra? Well, I will cause darkness now in the ninth plague. Showing you that the sun god is not in control of the sun. I am. God is the only sovereign one, and all of these plagues signify again and again that he is not to be messed with. He is the Lord. He is a self-sufficient one, and don't trust anything else, therefore. So notice here, just notice the contrast, right, between the Egyptians and the Israelites. The Egyptians for 400 years had enslaved the Israelites. The Egyptians for 400 years enjoyed military might, power, fame, conquest, and everything that they ever wanted. They were rich. They were, they were glorious and splendor. They were mighty. Everybody knew who they were. 
Why was the Egyptians so powerful? Well, they thought to themselves it was because they were worshiping these pagan deities and because of Pharaoh's own power, right? But look at the people of Israel, the people that knew the Lord. They were suffering for generation after generation as slaves to this pagan foreign nation, right? So that the nation worshiping pagan deities were successful, but the nation that the Lord knew were enslaved. And this tells us something really serious about how God works, isn't it? God prioritizes that you would know him more than he does your ease and your comfort. God prioritizes that his knowledge would be known by you more deeply, such that he would extend the suffering of the Israelites by giving these plagues one by one. They had to wait over 10 plagues for them to be released because he wanted them to know from son to grandson who the Lord was. If that means extending their suffering more, then so be it. This is exactly how Jesus worked, right? John chapter 9, remember the story there. Jesus passed over a blind man on the street. And when Jesus saw this blind man, right, his disciples asked him, this man was born blind. Why was he born blind? Is it because he sinned or is it because his parents sinned? Is this a punishment for his sins, therefore? And Jesus rebuked them. And Jesus said, no, no, no. He wasn't born blind because his parents sinned or because he sinned. He was born blind so that you may see the glory of God. And then he healed him, and then that blind man became an evangelist. And the disciples saw the power of Jesus through that. Jesus prioritized knowing him more than this man's sight. You know, a preacher once said, what if Satan ruled the world? You think that there will be evils abounding, that everybody would be killing and slandering one another to no end? No, no, no. He said, if Satan were ruling the world, it would exactly by like how the Egyptians were living, Right? The Egyptians were worshiping pagan, satanic rulers, we would ultimately say. And yet, they were prosperous, they were moral, they were proud of it, they were popular, they were known throughout all the world. And he says exactly that. If Satan was completely in charge, everybody would simply be moral and polite and prosperous. But if you ask those inhabitants under Satan's rule, do you know the Lord? You know what they would say? We have no need of him. We have no need of God. We've got it all together. We've got it all together. We, we know exactly what we're doing. We don't need God. What if Satan's ultimate objective, therefore, is not that you would suffer, but his ultimate objective is simply that you would not know the Lord. So, Christian, that's a hard question for us to swallow because which one do you prefer? Do we prefer to live under ease and comfort and glory now? And not know God, or would you, with Moses and the Israelites, and ultimately, of course, with the disciples of Christ, say, Lord, if it means blindness and darkness and extending our suffering even more, as long as we know you, that's enough. That's the crux. That's the ultimate question that we've got to ask ourselves. So this is a sign of God's utter sufficiency, that God prioritizes knowing him. And he's not just the Lord over all of these pagan deities. I hope you see that through these plagues, he's the Lord over all creation, right? The plagues, as Tazar mentioned last week, is a reversal of God's creation order. It shows that God is utterly sovereign over all of creation. How did God create in Genesis? Genesis chapter 1. God created in a very orderly fashion, didn't he? God created the land, 
And then he created animals to inhabit the land. The land, therefore, was fitted for the animals. Then God created the waters and then sea creatures to inhabit the water so that the waters would be fitting for the sea creatures and therefore nourish everyone else. And then he created light and darkness, rhythmizing the days and the nights. And then finally, at the pinnacle of creation, God created man, Adam and Eve, the image of God. And, and of course, that's exactly the pattern that we see in the plagues, right? Instead of animal and, and land working together, he's sending the locusts, the smallest of the animals, and gnats to destroy the greenery of the land. Instead of the water feeding the animals, he turned the water into blood. And instead of the sun and the dark working itself out in an orderly way so that we would know when to work and when to rest, God blotted out the sun. And of course, we're going to see next week, just as the pinnacle of creation is the creation of man, so are the pinnacles of the plague, the killing of man, the firstborn sons of Egypt. God in his plagues is mirroring the decreation and reversing what he was doing in Genesis. And he's communicating now. He's Lord over all creation. And if we are disobedient against him, we're reversing God's creation orders. So this is the priority, that we know exactly who God is. And these plagues were meant to communicate that. Not only that, as God is communicating these signs, what are we supposed to do about them? Well, look at what he says there at the, end, at the middle of verse 2. That you may tell in the hearing of your son and of your grandson how I, held dark, how I have dealt harshly with the Egyptians and what signs I have done among them. In other words, God is saying there, these plagues, these signs, this redemption that I'm pulling the Egyptians away from themselves and so that the Israelites could go to the promised land through the Red Sea, through the, through the crossing Ultimately, he's saying there, this is what's going to ground your family identity. The reference to sons and grandsons, that's in reference to the male leadership of the family. It's trying to say there, here's your non-negotiable for your families. Here's your family identity. Here's your family heritage that you have to protect and keep. That you and your people would always know the Lord. You know, I was watching the, the movie Creed on the way back here. Uh, the movie about the boxer Creed. It was part of the Rocky series, right? It's Michael B. Jordan. Uh, and he was a boxer, and he was the son of a boxer. And the whole premise of the movie was exactly that, uh, the idea of family heritages. Uh, Creed was a son of a boxer, and throughout the whole movie, he was trying to prove himself. He was trying to say, am I really my father's son? Can I fight as good as he did? Can I box as good as he did? And so he understood that his family legacy was in this boxing legacy, and he had to continue it out. What do we believe is our family legacy? And I think, especially in an Asian context, this hits home to us, right? Because maybe in our context, our non-negotiable in our family legacy might be our work. Maybe it's in the careers that we inherit from our fathers and our forefathers. You know, if you come from a family in an entertainment business, so you too, you must continue this. This is non-negotiable. Maybe it's ethnicity. You come from a long line of Chinese and Indonesians, you can't marry anyone else from a different ethnicity. What's the non-negotiable? And here's what the Bible is saying, friends, from this passage and other passages. It's saying here the only non-negotiable in your family is that you would communicate the name and acts of Yahweh to your children and your grandchildren. That's the only thing. There is no other non-negotiable. Everything else is utterly secondary. Know the Lord. There's a priority here of knowing Him. So if the priority is in knowing the God, how do we do that? What exactly does it even look like? What does it mean 
to truly repent and know the Lord. That's the second point here that this passage teaches us. The nature of true repentance. Let's go to the second point, therefore, and, and look again at verse 1. And notice, who is God hardening specifically in verse 1 of our passage? It says there, Go into Pharaoh, for I have hardened his heart and the heart of his servants, that I may show the signs of mine among them. Notice two groups here are hardened. Pharaoh on the one hand, and his servants on the other, right? So Pharaoh, that seems obvious to us. Pharaoh is stubborn. He's not wanting to change his mind. He's not letting the people go. That seems clear and obvious. But his servants are hardened too. But notice what happens in verse 7, after Moses warns them about the locusts. In verse 7, it says this, Then Pharaoh's servants said to him, How long shall this man be a snare to us? Let the men go that they may serve the Lord their God. Do you not understand that Egypt is ruined? But I thought their hearts were hardened, right? If their hearts are hardened, how come they're telling Pharaoh to obey God? You know, why are they doing this? So, so that I think what this passage is teaching us here is that the hardness of the heart could manifest itself in two ways. It could manifest itself in the stubbornness like Pharaoh and the obstinacy of Pharaoh, the, uh, the hard-headedness of Pharaoh, or it could manifest itself in, in the servants, in the fickleness. These servants were, were simply what I call giving an apology of convenience. An apology of convenience. Because the servants, they're just scared of the plagues. They're not afraid of disobeying God himself. They're not afraid of the sin itself. They're simply afraid of the consequences of their sins, right? They're just giving an apology of convenience, not because they were grieving the sin, but because they were afraid of the consequences. And you know, non-Christians know this just as much as, as Christians. You don't need to be a Christian to understand that an apology of convenience is not really saying sorry, right? I mean, Rihanna herself knew this in a 2008 song. Baby, don't tell me you're sorry when you're not, when really you're just sorry you got caught, right? That's a pop song, and everybody resonated with it, you know? You never thought that you, I would quote a Rihanna song, did you? There you have it. Now, CCC Sermon has quoted Rihanna. Now, everybody has understood that if you're truly repentant, if you're truly sorry, you're not just scared of the consequences. You're scared of the thing. You know, 13 years ago, before I was a Christian, um, I had the habit of sneaking out from my parents' homes. I don't recommend you do it if you're a teenager here. Please don't. Don't follow this at all. And at this one moment, I was sneaking out, and I went to Kamang at a very ungodly hour to do very ungodly things. And uh, I was in Kamang until about 2.30 or 2 a.m. I can't really remember exactly when we were starting to drive back. And of course, we were driving a family car, and I was with a friend of mine. Uh, his name is Sadrak. Some of you know him. Uh, I've asked his permission to share the story, so now you know. Um, and, and we were driving together back home from Kamang this one time. And on the way back to Lipo Karawachi, right, what happened? Our tire burst. Our tire burst. And we were so scared. We were shaken to the core. And of course, we were, st we were stupid teenagers, you know. We couldn't call our parents. We're going to get in trouble. We who do we call? Right? We were so, so scared. And so smartly, we decided, let's just drive home with a flat tire. For at, at 10 kilometers per hour. And if you've lived in Karawachi, even visited Karawachi, you know that to get to Lipo, it takes about 20 kilometers of a highway. That's a long time. We were on the road for like 90 minutes. And all the way back, as you know, we were just fearing for our lives. I remember we took out our MP3 players because we didn't have iPhones back then. We started singing Hillsong. 
and this was like 2004, 2005, you know, it was mighty to save, it was all the rage back then, you know. And we were singing and we were singing, and you know, one of the girls that were with us, she started to cry a little bit, you know. And I remember, we were praying too, we were like, oh Lord, have mercy on us. Well, we were so scared for our lives with our tires squeaking like that. And I remember we even said, we'll never do this again. We've learned our mistakes. We've learned our lessons. But of course, the next week we did. <laughs> we did, and again and again, countless more times after that. And that's when I realized, you know, that I, w- I didn't really repent back then. That was not a repentance, because I was just scared of my life for going back at 10 kilometers per hour with a flat tire in the Karawachi Highway, right? I wasn't afraid of sneaking out itself. I wasn't repenting of that. No, no, no. I was just scared. And look at verse 16. Look at how Pharaoh calls Moses here. Pharaoh hastily called Moses and Aaron and said, I have sinned against the Lord and against you. Now, therefore, forgive my sin. Please, only this once, son of a lot like me. So singing Hillsong. And plead with the Lord your God only to remove this death from me. And by the way, this isn't the first time Pharaoh has said this, right? You saw last week in a plague, Pharaoh said again, please forgive me, I've sinned. Here's the second time. And he says, only this once, oh, how quick we are to forget. See, this is not a true repentance. Pharaoh was giving an apology of convenience. He was repenting when it was convenient for him. He was afraid of the consequences and not for the sin itself. So that true repentance is not giving an apology of convenience. True repentance is grieving for the sin itself. Turning away from the sin and onto full-hearted obedience for God. It is utterly grieving for the sin itself and not just for the consequences. And Calvin said it very well at one point, the 16th century reformer. He said, true repentance is when you're scared of disobeying the Father even if there were no hell. Even if there were no hell, even if you knew that there was no chance for you to get punished, you would still fear disobeying him. That's not only the only thing we learn about true repentance. The second thing about true repentance here that we see is that true repentance is not half-hearted. Look at what it says there in verses uh, 9 to 10 and 11. Moses is repeating the, the request that he's been repeating again and again in each plague, right? He says, we will go, this is verse 9, we will go with our young and our old. We will go with our sons and daughters and with our flocks and herds, for we must hold a feast to the Lord. But he said to them, the Lord be with you if ever I let you and your little ones go. Look, you have some evil purpose in mind. No, go the man among you and serve the Lord, for that is what you are asking. And they were driven out from Pharaoh's presence. Notice what Pharaoh is doing here. What is Moses requesting? It's consistent with all his previous requests. He's saying, let us all go, all the Israelites, right? Male, female, young and old, all of our livestock, we need to go worship the Lord elsewhere. Let us all go. What is Pharaoh saying? He says, I'll let some of you go. I'll let your men go. Only your men could go, but, but your women, your young, your livestock, they stay with me. And he repeats this again in the ninth plague, in the plague of darkness. Look at verse 24 of our passage. It says there, Then Pharaoh called Moses and said, Go serve the Lord. Your little ones also may go with you. Only let your flocks and your herds remain behind. So this time he's giving over a little bit more of Israel, right? So in the passage it says, Your little ones can't go with you. This time they all could go. But all of your livestock, they stay behind. 
which is really a mockery, right? Because one, they couldn't survive in the desert without their livestock, and two, what are they going to worship the Lord with? How are they going to feast and offer sacrifices to this God? So Pharaoh knew that if, if, they let, if he lets the people go and not the livestock, they had to come back in some way. See, this is a compromise. You know what Pharaoh was doing? Here's what he, he was giving half-hearted obedience. He was saying, Lord, Moses, right? I'm going to give you all of what you asked for except this part. I'm going to give you all of what you asked for, but these areas, no, 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 I'm not going to give that to you. He's siphoning off one area, and he's saying, I'm only going to obey you in some parts and not all parts. He's still setting the terms and conditions under which he would obey. And friends, if you're doing that, you're not truly obeying God. If you're the ones who's going to decide what area of your life you could give to God and what area you won't give to God, you're still the ultimate arbiter of what obedience you would give. He's not the Lord over you at all then, Right? This is like saying, you know, I'm going to obey God and my family. I'm going to be the best father I could ever be. But in business, oh, that's too idealistic, you know. I've got to not obey God there. And that's just just impossible for me to obey God and be successful. Or it's the other way around, you know. I'm going to be really, really good at my career and my work. But I can't possibly be good to my children. They're way too old now. I can't. They're irredeemable. My past is redeemable. Or it's more insidious, you know, it's, it could be a secret habit in your life, a secret dark corner in your life that nobody knows about, and you thought, if I could just keep this pet sense, but every other area of my life, I'm going to give over to the Lord. That's not good enough either, friends. Those are still half-hearted obedience, and you're still ultimately the one who determines what you give and what you don't give. It's like getting married and saying, I'm going to be married to you, except on Fridays. Every other day, I'm going to remain committed to you. See, friends, this is what God desires of us. God desires a covenantal relationship. Just like marriage is a covenantal relationship, full and full-hearted obedience is the only thing that could suffice in that kind of relationship. So true repentance, therefore, is not giving an apology of convenience, and it is not half-hearted. True repentance is moving away from sin, grieving for the sin itself, and turning to God in full-hearted obedience. But it's not the only thing that this passage is teaching us. There's more to this. Let's go to our third point here. The third point is about how God has given himself over to the hearts of sinful men. Notice here the, the pattern of our passage so far, right? The pattern of our passage is what? God hardening people, namely Pharaoh and his servants, so that a greater sign of who he is could be given and manifested, right? God giving people over to their sins so that a greater glory of God could be seen. Now, I want us to take a look at verses 27, 28, and 29 of our passage, the last three verses of our passage, because these three passages um, correct a severe misconception that we might have by God hardening Pharaoh's heart. Look at what it says here. But the Lord hardened Pharaoh's heart, and he would not let them go. Then Pharaoh said to him, Get away from me. Take care never to see my face again, for on the day you see my face you shall die. And Moses said, As you say, I will not see your face again. Now, notice here once again that God is hardening the heart of Pharaoh. This is a motif that you've seen throughout all these plagues again and again and again. 
But I want to correct a misconception that we might have here, because I think that we think that God hardening Pharaoh's heart looks like this, right? It's, it's, it's like Pharaoh coming to God and saying, I really wanted to let these people go, but then you stopped me. Why do you keep stopping me from, from letting these people go? I really want to let them go, but you keep hindering me. Almost as if God is, is stopping Pharaoh from getting what he wants, namely to let the people go. This is all God's doing. But I want us to see, friends, that God hardening Pharaoh's heart, it's not as if God was putting in the evil desires into his heart. It's not as if God was the author of sin. Look at what it says there. Verse 27 again. The Lord hardened Pharaoh's heart, and he would not let them go. Then Pharaoh said to him, why do you keep doing this to me? No, he doesn't. He says, get away from me. Take care never to see my face again. For on the day you see my face, you shall die. And notice what Moses says. As you say. In other words, he's saying, have it your way. Is this really what you want? I'll give you what you want. You see, friends, God hardening Pharaoh's heart, he doesn't need to implant an evil desire in Pharaoh's heart. All of our hearts by nature is evil. All God has to do to harden Pharaoh's heart is simply to let go of his restraining grace. In fact, uh, Romans chapter 1 says that the wrath of God is manifested in this by giving us over to our desires, giving us over to our lusts and temptations, giving us over to the natural inclinations of our hearts. God doesn't have to input anything in us. It's already there. So, you know, if, if a father wanted to discipline his alcoholic son, right, how would he discipline his son? By removing all the alcohol, by moving his son into maybe a rehab center, by keeping him accountable, right? In other words, the discipline and the love is precisely in restraining the son. But if the son just keeps going and going and the father is fed up and he simply says, all right, this is what you want, I'll let you have it. And he lets all the restraints go. So, you know, the, the book of Hebrews talks about the love of God as a discipline. The Lord disciplines all those whom he loves. And Romans 1 says that in the wrath of God, he would give you over to your desires. So the Westminster Confession of Faith is really, really good on this. This is in our statement of faith today. Look there with me. It articulates this so well. This is in the last article, chapter 5, article 6. It says there, as for those wicked and ungodly men, and namely all of us, were it not for God's grace, as a righteous judge, blinds and hardens because of their former sins from them. And how does he blind and harden? Well, it says there, he not only withholds his grace by which their minds have been enlightened and their hearts affected, but he sometimes also withdraws the gifts which they had. Notice the language of withdrawing, the language of withholding, right? All God has to do for Pharaoh to harden his heart is simply to let go. Calvin's analogy of this, again, is instructive too. Uh, again, the 16th century reformer. He talks about how the analogy of God hardening Pharaoh's heart is kind of like the sun, the, the hot sun, putting its beams of light and, and heat onto a corpse. What would happen if the sun strikes up light onto a corpse? The corpse will start to, to, to smell bad. There will be an odor. There will be stench, right? But the stench doesn't come from the sun. It comes from the corpse itself, even though we could say in one sense... Because of the sun, the corpse started to smell. But the corpse cannot, therefore, look unto the sun and say, you put this in me. No, no, no. All God has to do 
is give us over to our own desires. So notice here, God gave Pharaoh and the servants over to their desires so that God would display a greater sign, a sign of who he is. Friends, there's another moment in redemptive history where exactly these same things happen, where God would give over all of the evil men into their own desires so that God would give a greater sign. But this time, it's not a sign of sovereignty. It's not a sign where God would give them over to their desires so that God would punish them in plagues. No, it's a sign of love and mercy. Turn your Bibles to Luke chapter 22. Luke chapter 22. We're going to be in verses 3 to 6 very quickly. And I'll close with this. Luke 22, verses 3 to 6. It says here, this is, of course, right before Jesus was crucified. He was betrayed by Judas. Notice how the text describes Judas' betrayal here. Verses 3 to 6 of Luke 22. Then Satan entered into Judas, called Iscariot, who was one of the number of the twelve. He went away and conferred with the chief priests and officers how he might betray him to them. And notice here, they were glad and agreed to give him money. So he consented and sought an opportunity to betray him to them in the absence of a crowd. Notice the language there. There's nothing in there about God causing and implanting desires in them, right? It's simply the language of gladness, of consent, of agreement. But notice what happens just a few verses later. Turn the page over and look at what Jesus says to his disciples the Last Supper. Jesus says in verse 20, same chapter, and likewise the cup after they had eaten, saying, this cup that is poured out for you is the new covenant in my blood. But behold, the hand of him who betrays me is with me on this table. For the Son of Man goes as it has been determined. In other words, as God has planned it. But notice that God's determination doesn't let go of Judas. Woe to the man by whom he is betrayed. There's a compatibility here between God's sovereignty and man's responsibility, friends. And here's what's going on in Jesus' time. Here's what's going on to Jesus himself. If in the Exodus, God has given over men to their desires that God would give the greater sign of his glory by way of the plagues, here, God is giving men over to their evil desires and showing a greater sign, not by way of plagues, but by way of the cross. He would defeat death by giving over his only son to death itself. And just as the people of God therefore saw who he is in the Exodus even more clearly through the plague, so now we could look at this greater sign of who he is in the cross. This is the sign of who God is. He's not just the Yahweh of the Exodus. He's Jesus Christ, Emmanuel, God with us, who became one of us so that he would die in our place, friends. This is the greater sign that we have to transfer from son to grandson, from family to family, from generation to generation. We have the mark of the new covenant. No longer traversing through the waters of the Red Sea, but by traversing through the waters of baptism. This is the sign that you have to proclaim to the world. Jesus Christ who died for you. Because if it were not for that death, we would face the wrath of God ourselves. Let us pray. Father, we thank you for your son who, by giving him over to the desires of sinful men, Father, gave us our salvation. 
By his death, you have destroyed death. And by evil, you have destroyed evil. Father, help us worship you because of this. Help us see this, not just in our minds, but in our hearts. Help us adore you even more because of it. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.